I decide to, I'll call every one of you and let you know. And okay, okay, okay. Well, let's uh, ask the Lord's guidance as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the great mystery that you are, and for the requirement of faith to bridge that mystery. Thank you that you are greater than our understanding and greater than our ways. Thank you that you call us up to a higher place. That you call us into, in a sense, a deeper place within where you reside and where your voice calls. I ask that uh, today and in the weeks to come, you would attune our ear to hear your voice and rekindle whatever flickering flames there may be in us, a passion to really walk a different path with you, to answer your call to being set apart. I ask that you take this time now and that you break it and bless it, uh, that you plant your truth uniquely in the heart of each person here so that he or she will be blessed and moved uniquely by your personal voice. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I think for the next several weeks, you know, this is the first time that I have not had a sense right away of where we needed to go once we ended one study, which we've just ended the book of John. Uh, I've always, since we've been doing this chapel time, had a, just a real sense of exactly where we were going to go, and I, I didn't until about 1.30 this morning. <laughs> so, and I, you know, I just finally gave up and went to bed, and as I was falling asleep, I thought, okay, maybe. I thought, okay, I'm just going to go in and wing it. <laughs> I have no idea what we're going to do, Lord. I'm going to bed. And uh, <laughs> as I was falling asleep, um, you know, I realized that some of the things that I had been thinking about and, and um, wrestling with uh, last night and trying to figure out sort of what the Lord would have just sort of all kind of came together um, in looking at um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, because in the Sermon on the Mount is the blueprint for a new order of man that Christ commissioned and, and called us into seeing things differently and to being set apart. Um, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. And so when you see the word in, uh, throughout the New Testament of we are called with a holy calling uh, and, and the word call, when Christ called them, um, that word is kaleo, which means set apart, called aside. And so the whole idea of uh, Christ in us and the whole idea of what Christ was about 
in, in the life of the, the people 2,000 years ago and in our lives today is that we would answer his call to be set apart from the world and to be so radically different that the world would notice. And that in that sideward glance from their own reality, they would catch a scent of God uh, on the wind as a result of how you and I live our lives. And so I want us to look here and spend some time in the next couple of weeks on the Beatitudes and on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I'm just going to kind of generally look at some things today. But when Christ uh, came onto the scene, uh, he first drew people to him by his miracles. In fact, if you, if you turn to Matthew uh, 4, the last few verses of Matthew 4, uh, after Jesus has um, come out of the wilderness uh, temptations, he makes, himself, uh, he makes his way to Nazareth in uh, verse 13 and Capernaum. And then you begin to see uh, that how he is drawing people to himself is um, teaching not only in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but in healing and in doing miracles. And so the initial rush and wave of people to him came as a result, not only of his teachings, but more initially and more immediately as a result of the miracles that he had done. Uh, people who had been blind from birth received sight. Uh, lepers were healed. Um, uh, the deaf received hearing. And so you see this man that is coming onto the scene and uh, changing lives in ways no other man has ever done. And so there is this rush of people to follow him. And in the midst of that rush, he begins calling out some of his disciples. And after he has finished selecting um, what we now call the apostles, he... Uh, goes to a mountain, and, and some of the multitudes follow him, and the disciples go with him, and he begins to teach. Now, he comes onto a scene, the, the setting that Christ enters into is he comes into a world, the Jewish world, that has been absolutely controlled and dominated by a group of men in the church itself that were legalistic, that put heavy burdens on people, of performance and of obedience, but did not enter into those burdens themselves. These are the same mindset of people that had killed the prophets, that had maligned God's people, God's chosen uh, servants, whenever they came to speak to the world of God's ways. These church leaders for many centuries, this fabric of church leader had been the ones to resist God's movement. And so they had a whole system of laws that only they knew all of the laws. They had embellished uh, Moses' laws from the mountain of God with hundreds and hundreds of laws that only they could know, so only they could obey them. And so their righteousness was that you check off, you just have this immense list, 
And you know, at the end of each day, you'd check off your obediences. And you were therefore righteous. And you were certainly more righteous than the rest of the masses because the rest of the masses weren't obeying at all because in some ways they didn't know what they were to obey. And uh, in many other ways they were obeying, but not as completely as the Pharisees were and as the Sadducees were. And so you have this religious hierarchy and you have this religious legalism in which things had to be done precisely. And everything was external. The hub of this wheel was the Ten Commandments, but then everything else was wrapped around it in layer upon layer upon layer like paper mache. And so you have Christ in his first introduction of himself doctrinally to the people, coming in and making a radical call upon the hearts of men and coming in and turning this world with his hour, two-hour, three-hour teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, turning the known religious world on its ear. And he had just, as he had gone to Nazareth, you know, I told you that he left the, the wilderness and he went up to Nazareth and went over and on over and, and dwelt in Capernaum. In Nazareth, it, this is where he went in Luke 4 and read from Isaiah um, a prophecy of himself, and he said, this day is this fulfilled in your ears. And then he went about talking to the church leaders there, kind of in their face, about <clears throat> their, how their faith, their kind of faith, and their kind of religiosity was not going to cut it. And he basically just got in their face and said, uh, you know, God is not going to be continuing to deal with you if you don't change. And he used historical precedents to, to support that view. And in that moment, he so infuriated the church leaders in his home synagogue that they tried to kill him. Now, this was his first public presentation of himself in Nazareth. And... Uh, and the church leaders tried to take him to a hill and throw him off the hill and kill him. Now you can imagine the chagrin that was going on with his poor mother. Yeah. <laughs> her, her firstborn son <laughs> has been lost in the wilderness for 40 days. She must have thought he may have died. No one knew where he was. No one had seen him. And when he comes out of the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights, he's gaunt, perhaps emaciated, because he hasn't eaten. You can imagine what his hair looked like and his beard. And he makes his way, and you, you, you can get the sense that Mary and, and his brothers <clears throat> are beginning to get word that he is alive and that they've seen him and that he's making his way home. And you can imagine the, the overarching joy, the overwhelming joy that Mary must have experienced in this moment and, and the tearfulness of, of anticipating his return. And when he returns, he makes his way straight to the synagogue and in power confronts them, and they try to kill him. The church leaders, the pastor of Lake Point tries to kill him, you know. <laughs> what is this? 
Yes. <laughs> and and the, 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 the fear, the humiliation, the disbelief, the embarrassment, if not to marry to his brothers. And so you see in Mark 3, in the same kind of time frame, you see his extended family members. So you're, this, this would be like uncles or cousins, or both, coming to try to take him home. And it says, and I think it's in Mark 3, that they thought he had lost his mind. Wow. <laughs> what an amazing family scenario here. Uh, they're trying to take him home because they thought he had lost his mind in the wilderness. You see, and he's come out of there. Here is this carpenter boy that had done everything right, that grew in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God and man, who had done everything right, had been compliant in every way, had been dutiful in every way, had been obedient in every way, and he gets lost in the wilderness and he comes out and no one recognizes him. Not just physically, but personality-wise. Something has happened to his personality. It has changed, and he is in the face of the church leaders that he grew up with. And so they try to bring him home because they think he's lost his mind. And then the next page over in Mark, you see his mother and his brothers knocking on the door of this place where he is. Jesus doesn't even go to them. You know, he, word is sent, your mother and brothers are there seeking to talk with you, and he, he appears not to go and talk to them. He said, who are my mother and my brothers but them that do the will of him that sent me? And then you see in John, his brothers, and that's around John 6, encouraging Christ to go to Jerusalem where the Jews were seeking to kill him at the Feast of the Tabernacles. I think it's that feast. Uh, to go there and, and put up or shut up, prove himself. Now, the undercurrent that you get there from his brothers is that they were wanting him out of their hair. And why don't you go to Jerusalem and put all the cards on the table and see what happens. You almost get the sense that they were just hoping the Jews would take care of things because his brothers didn't believe in him. So this is the revolutionary that came onto the scene. This is the radical man that was, was bringing a unique, solitary focus upon God and calling people to that focus and calling people to leave the entrapments that this world brings to us, leave the entanglements that this world has on us and follow him. And so he's coming into this scene after he has all, he's had all these encounters in the very beginning of his ministry with the church leaders, and he now comes and he starts speaking to the people gathered on the mountain. And immediately the tone of his teachings is radically different and opposed to that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And so we look here at the Beatitudes and what the Ten Commandments are to the Old Testament, the Beatitudes are to the New.
And look at where he goes with this. Verse uh, 3 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm just going to give an overview today of this. But notice the pattern here. There's a pattern to the Beatitudes. Uh, The first three verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm going to read this, and you all look for the pattern. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed, or happy, are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You see, he's already experiencing that. So this is not just futuristic. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. What pattern do you pick up there in the Beatitudes? Yes. Yes. And, and this, this is an, uh, a blueprint for godliness. And there is a reward for it, but it's not the reward that we, we normally look for. But there is a reward for godliness. Absolutely. What else do we see here? There are several patterns. So there is reward for the cost of following. Yeah. Yeah, there will be a cost of discipleship here. But there is a reward for that as well. So he puts them both together. Um, Almost paradoxically, you're blessed if you are persecuted. You're blessed if you do mourn. He is coming against the, the human mindset here. He's introducing a whole new way of seeing things and a whole new way of doing things. And he's asking for the human mindset to shift, the human paradigm to shift. He is saying the opposite of what seems logical and natural to us. That when we are meek, in a sense, we are strong. When we suffer, we are blessed. Boy, he, and he, see, he doesn't do like we do today. You know, if we've got a real power punch teaching to give or a sermon to give or a statement to make, we really ease people into that a little bit at a time. 
you know, pastors will just ease us into something and then hit us with something. Get us ready, get things prepared so that we can take a harder saying. Not so with Jesus. He just jumps right in. He doesn't, um, he doesn't warm the water. What else do you see here? How does this compare and contrast with the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. This is a journey inward. The Old Testament Ten Commandments are external behaviors and external approaches and external attitudes and responses. This is interior. This has to do with my inner state, with an interior journey. I see it as a stairwell downward down into an intimate abiding relationship with Christ from which comes my approach to life, from which comes my mindset. Yeah. And so you have here another pattern sequentially having to do with that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn and blessed are the meek. It's like there's an emptying out of self, an emptying out of my pride, and emptying out of my self-focus, poor in spirit, in a sense, humility. We will be looking in this study at the keys of the kingdom as we go along here. What this series of lessons will be about is the mark of Christ on our life, the mark of Christ on my heart. What should we look like? How should we be if we are answering that call to come apart and to come aside from the world and be different than the world? Um, the Old Covenant Ten Commandments were external disciplines, and here it is an interior renovation. And so when you see the first three, those are about emptying out of my pride, of my self-agenda, and yet there's blessing in that. You and I don't want to do that. <laughs> we want to have our own, our own, you know, our own uh, schedule and our own agenda. And, I mean, we've worked for this, and at this stage in our life, we deserve it. We deserve more comfort and more ease, and you know, I just want to retire. Retirement's not in the vocabulary of the Bible, nor of God. But we have our own ideas, and what these first three verses uh, of these first three Beatitudes are about is coming into the emptying process, pouring ourselves out, so that we will have a hunger and a thirst for that which is righteous. Verse 6, blessed are they that hunger and thirst. 
If I am not hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God, I am not empty enough. There is too much of me in me if I have lost my hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've not, I filled myself up with soul fill. You know, cities have their landfill. You and I have our soul fill. Just the, the refuge and the debris of the world I let come in. The refuge and the debris of my own ideas.